Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Exodus uh, 2, 1 through 14. Listen for what God is saying to you. Now a man from Levi's household married a Levite woman. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that the baby was healthy and beautiful, so she hid him for three months. When she couldn't hide him any longer, she took a reed basket and sealed it up with black tar. She put the child in the basket and set the basket among the reeds at the riverbank. The baby's older sister stood watch nearby to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, while her women servants served, uh, walked along beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and she sent one of her servants to bring it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child. The boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. She said, this must be one of the Hebrews' children. Then the baby sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, would you like me to go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter agreed, yes, do that. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse it for me, and I'll pay you for your work. So the woman took the child and nursed it. After the child had grown up, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, who adopted him as her son. She named him Moses because, as she said, I pulled him out of the water. One day after Moses had become an adult, he went out among his people and he saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. He looked around to make sure no one else was there. Then he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When Moses went out the next day, he saw two Hebrew men fighting with each other. Moses said to the one who had started the fight, why are you abusing your fellow Hebrew? He replied, who made you a boss or judge over us? Are you planning to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid when he realized they obviously knew what I did. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of the scripture. Good morning. As Brandy said, I have been, I've known Brandy for a long time and working with UBC for several years now, and I've always wanted to come. My, uh, my home church responsibilities have kept me from being here, so I'm grateful for the invitation and your presence. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your spirit, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So our scripture this morning tells the story of the birth and early life of Moses, the great leader. While the Israelites were being held in bondage by the Egyptians, in fact, Moses' mother was so clear at his birth that he was special, she hid him away for three months to protect him. But after he grew to the point where she could no longer keep him hidden, she placed her child in a basket and floated him away on the Nile. Moses is eventually pulled out of the river, this is named Moses, and is adopted by a pharaoh's daughter. After Moses becomes a man, he sees an Egyptian beating another Israelite, one of Moses' own relatives. Moses becomes incensed at this 
He looks around and doesn't see any witnesses, and he kills the Egyptian on the spot and buries him in the sand in a shocking act of violence. There's no drama like Hebrew Bible drama. <laughs> the next day, just the next day, Moses sees the Hebrew, two Hebrew men fighting. And being the special man that Moses is, he confronts the one who initiated the fight and demands to know, why are you beating your neighbor? The man looks at Moses and says, who are you to tell me what to do? And what are you going to do? You're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? Bury me in the sand as well? Moses becomes terrified when he realizes that they know what I've done. They can see me. He's filled with shame at realizing that he is seen beyond his image, particularly when he's confronted by his own actions. And don't you hate it when you get called out on your own self-righteousness? This is the position the great leader is in. He has got a real moment of shame. They know about me. They can see right through me. Now, as Brandy said, I'm a national organizer for an organization called Crossroads Anti-Racism Organizing and Training and a co-leader of Crossroads Anti-Racism and Training here in Chicago. I spend most of my working life facilitating workshops and other conversations about race and racism. But also as a person who is black and gay, these conversations tend to have an intersectional worldview. In fact, that work is, again, how I came to know Urban Village Church. I'm also, as Brandy alluded to, I'm a cradle Episcopalian, and I belong to a church community on the west side in the Austin neighborhood called St. Martin's Episcopal Church. Also, as a disabled person, I spend a lot of time in cars and vans, Ubers, Lyfts, limousines, etc. Earlier this week, I was riding with a man who often drives me around Chicago. His name is Jamal. And we were driving from a workshop in the High Park neighborhood to my home in the South Loop. It was a short 20-minute ride. And Jamal and I often ride together because there are very few people who drive disabled people in vans around Chicago. So I've known Jamal for a long time. And we started talking in the car on that short ride and picked up on a conversation that we had started a few weeks ago, the last time we worked with him. It was about 9.30, the last time I drove with him. It's about 9.30 at night. We were driving up Lakeshore Drive. It was a beautiful night. Um, the, um, uh, the conversation started going back to high school. Jamal and I grew up in the same neighborhood on the south side. He went to Chicago Vocational High School, CVS, and I went to Lindblom. And we had both grown up at around the same time in the 1970s. And we understand that, at least in those days, knowing one's high school told you everything you needed to know about that person. I'm not sure whether that's still the case today. As we were riding, we commented on the, the way that Lakeshore Drive used to be. Those of you who don't remember, uh, the area between here and the South Loop was filled with uh, gangs, the El Rukins, housing projects, a wall along the lake that is no longer there. The moon was hanging kind of low over the lake. 
And we noted the shiny new bridges that have been built across Lakeshore Drive to give access to the gentrifying communities that align that, uh, the lake now that weren't there when, when Jamal and I were young. And as we were talking, he said something I couldn't quite hear. So I leaned forward in my chair and said, what did you say? And so he repeated himself and he said, I said, it's a good thing white people have moved in and pushed us blacks out of the neighborhood. I asked, why, why do you say that, Jamal? And he said, you know, we had this land for a long time. We had this land forever right here on the lake. And for all that time we had it, we did not do anything with it. We tore it up, he said. We tear up everything we get. White people don't do that. They keep everything nice. We just, we're just going to tear it up. We don't deserve this land. Jamal's words stung. It sent me into a contemplative silence for the rest of the trip home. And when I read this passage from Exodus, I think it speaks not only to the cruel bondage of the Israelites in Egypt, but it also speaks to what happens to us internally when we are forced to survive under the oppression of generation and generations of oppression. You know, in more recent times in the United States, oppression has taken the form of three particular ideologies. Genocide, particularly for Native Americans, slavery, African Americans, and colonialism, for those of us who are other people of, people of color groups. And those ideologies that feminist and activist Andrea Smith describes as the three pillars of white supremacy. For those of us who are people of color in the United States, the result of 500 years of genocide, slavery, and colonialism is that we have internalized the messages of these three pillars that teaches us that we are, as people of color, indeed inferior, and white people are indeed superior. That is, racism have, has us developing ideas, beliefs, and actions that have us, in both subtle and explicit ways, participating in our own oppression. Now, it's important to say here that internalization takes two forms. Internalization of white supremacy that teaches white people that they are superior, and internalization of racist oppression for those of us of people of color that teaches us that we are, based on 500-year history of white supremacy in this country, that we are indeed, as people of color, inferior human beings. Now, we're recognizing the power and impact of both internalized racist superiority and internalized racist oppression. For various reasons, I hope to focus my time with you this morning on internalized racist oppression as it impacts people of color. It is our internalized racist oppression that has an intelligent young black man like Jamal buying into, the, buying into and living out the belief that we don't deserve this land, that we're just going to tear it up, that white people are more deserving. And perhaps without any understanding that what may appear as we tear up everything we have has less to do with an imagined people of color pathology and everything to do with disinvestment, restrictive housing policies, destructive education policies, and all things related to the prison industrial complex. 
This internalization is not the same as self-esteem, I hasten to add. Nor is it the same as racial prejudice. Internalization is a result of hundreds of years of systemic oppression that reinforces power dynamics that privilege white people and disadvantages people of color. Internalization is about systems of oppression that use power to appropriate the resources from people of color community, redistributes those resources among white society, and then has those of us who are people of color fighting for the scraps that are left behind. Earlier, I described it as a shocking act of violence when Moses kills the Egyptian after, after witnessing him beating one of, his, one of his brothers. But when you think about it, should we really be surprised at Moses' actions? You know, for me, what is powerful in the story from Exodus is Moses' horror that people know who he is and what he had done and the shame he felt as a result. The great leader Moses, who was credited with writing the Torah and leading the Israelites out of Egypt across the Red Sea, was afraid. You know, I had a conversation just yesterday with a, with a, a 20-year-old Afro-Latina Puerto Rican woman who described it as imposter syndrome. She had recently graduated from Loyola, and she was troubled. She said that even though my grades and accomplishments were equal to my white counterparts at Loyola, she, she said she could never really see herself or shake the sense that she wasn't good enough, that she didn't deserve to be there. She felt that her hair was not right, her accent and her voice were not right, even her family was not right. As people of color, internalization often takes the shape of this imposter syndrome, a persistent internal voice that says, they obviously know that I don't belong here. They can obviously see that I'm not right. I'm not normal. I'm not good enough. I'm not qualified, and I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be in this position. No matter how many degrees I have, no matter how many accomplishments I make, no matter how many times and how often I transform myself into a creature my grandmother would not recognize, I'm still not enough. And I also want to be clear that internalized racist depression should not be seen as the same as self-hatred or self-esteem. I can have the highest of self-esteem, but all of us are vulnerable to those, to, 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 to those, those messages that come from a white supremacist power dynamic that teaches us that we are not good enough. Internalized racist oppression has us as individuals with the highest of self-esteem responding to the systems of oppression that constantly seek to commodify us that constantly seek to eliminate us, that constantly seek to manipulate us into supporting the system of white supremacy that, again, has us participating in our own oppression. That's the brilliance of white supremacy. White supremacy culture offers the exceptional people of color among us 
reap slight rewards for participating in our own oppression. You know, in South Africa, uh, and I spent time in South Africa post-apartheid, and they used a phrase to describe me that was very curious. They said that I was an honorary white. That while I was visiting South Africa, I would be exempt from the normal rules of what it meant to be a person of color, in their language, a colored person. And I'd be given provisional access to the rights of a white person only so long as I was not actually South African and I was visiting for a short period of time with a visa that said that I would be leaving on a certain date in the near future. I was going to be the exceptional one. Now in the United States, it looks a little bit different than honorary white. We don't have that language. What we have is a reality television show or a gatekeeping position in some institution, or perhaps a corner office in the executive suite. But again, only for the exceptional and those of us who can manage to shape ourselves into what looks like the exceptional one. And I also wanna confess that it's difficult and challenging for me to talk about people of color, because I know when I do so, we might be a little bit confused or very confused about what this concept of person of color actually means. What is a person of color? For instance, I have conversations that ask, why are we talking about people of color when we mean black people? What about Asian American people? The model minority, are they really people of color who suffer under systems of oppressions? And if we're talking about black people and we can't even figure out whether other people of color fit into that, what is the position of, of Arab Americans and Native Americans? Where do Latinx people fit in? Where are all these other people of color in this conversation? And what about biracial and multiracial people? What about transracial adoptees? What does people of color actually mean? We have a lot of conversations that we need to have. Now, all of this makes more sense when we see this as an actual aspect of internalization. It makes sense if we understand that white supremacy employs very sophisticated divide and conquer strategies that pit communities of color against one another. It makes more sense if we think about the divide and conquer strategies that create violent tensions between people of color communities fighting for those scarce resources that I mentioned are often left behind. Internalization exists in all people of color communities, but often manifests differently within those communities. Now, when we throw in conflicts around class and gender and sexuality, what we're left with is a hot mess, <laughs> rife with anti-blackness, based on a hierarchy of who is or who is perceived to be closer and in more proximity to whiteness. Internalized racism is at the root of homophobia and transphobia and toxic masculinity within people of color communities in particular. Because in our quest to approximate whiteness, we have internalized twisted binary messages of what it means to be masculine and feminine and then we police the boundaries of who is authentically in our group. We say, we don't have that 
in our community because it suggests weakness that might damage our ability to approximate whiteness. Internalized racism also gives us a very, very limited sense of what it means to be whole, a very limited ability to express creativity, and a very limited sense of what is possible in our own humanity. But I'm here to tell you the good news. I'm here to share with you that the good news is that God continued to be with Moses. She continued to be with, she continues to be with us also. The good news is that we are made in God's image. Not the image that white supremacy asks us to live into. But God has given us the life and the church. God has given us this church. Urban Village Church. A church that says the world, to the world that we are a church that is rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tears down walls and builds up life. A church where there is authentic joy in gathering to worship God and power. A church that allows us to discover that our life, our lives working together can serve and change the world. I am here because I believe in that good news. You know, I met a young Asian American man some time ago. He might actually be a member of Irving Village Church. In further conversation, however, he let me know very clearly that he did not identify as Asian American. He identified as white. He said that he was born in South Korea and was adopted by a white American family and raised in a small town in the Midwest. He resented that society was asking him to choose an identity, a Korean identity, an Asian American identity that he did not feel comfortable with. And he was struggling. He said, if I am Korean, what does that mean for my family that is white? What does it mean for the relationships that I have established as a white person? If I declare that I am Korean, where will I fit into the world and my family? I ran into him about a year later. I almost didn't recognize him. He just seemed lighter. And as we talked, he said that he had just, he had, he, he had just, um, sorry, he said that he had spent some time after our conversation in the workshop where he did some deep reflection about his own identity. And as a result of that, he reached out and actually found an, a brother uh, that he was raised with as a small baby in Korea before he was adopted. And his brother had also been adopted by an American family and raised in New York. And he told me that he had just returned from New York after spending some time building a relationship with his, with his newly found brother. He said that he realized that he was not whole. He did not feel whole. And that's what sent him on this journey of self-discovery. He said that after doing this research and finding his brother and his family, he said that he had, he had found a newly discovered sense of self and a sense of identity. He had begun to understand his own internalization and the source of that. And that discovery had allowed him to begin to live his life the way God had intended him to live it. 
He said that he had gained a sibling, but even more than that, he had gained a better relationship with his parents, and he had gained an expanded understanding of his own humanity and his relationship to the world. Our loving and understanding and benevolent God has offered this a possibility to all of us. That is the good news. Thank you.